welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist-oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. Welcome to Season 2. This week on Plenary Session, you're in for a real treat. I'm in the studio with Dr. Derek Tao for Question of the Week, inspired by the Mix app. Then I have Ian Straley for Question of the Week, USMLE Step 2, CK. And finally, questions from a medical student with Audrey Tran. Stay tuned. But first, a thanks. I want to thank those of you who've gone online and support this podcast on Patreon.com. Patreon subscribers get access to the slides from lectures I give on Plenary Session. I also want to thank the hundreds of you who've gone to the iTunes store and reviewed this podcast. We appreciate that feedback. I also want to thank the dozens of you who've written reviews. A written review goes a long way. What can Plenary Session do for you? Email us your questions at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session. Let us know what you like about the podcast and let us know what you don't like. This year on season two, we're going to incorporate some new elements in the podcast and we want to know your feedback on them. We're back for question of the week with Dr. Derek Tao. Derek is an internal medicine resident here, and he's going to be taking us through questions inspired by the Mix app. Derek, it's good to have you back in the studio. Good to be back. So, Derek, what's on the docket today? What do you got for us? I think I've got a pretty good question. Yeah. Although, I want to pause a second, actually. Yeah. Before, before we came on here, you were saying that you have to read through 50 questions before you find a good one for us to discuss. Well, that was a ex- slightly exaggeration, but I just feel like uh, I don't know what you're listeners want yet and I don't oh, know what yeah. qualifies as good so I kind of go until I find something like I don't interesting know, tricky, tricky. interesting yeah. yeah no I don't want that okay. I want just the bread and butter question but you know what Derek poses an interesting question so if you have feelings do you want a hard tricky question or do you just want an average randomly selected question to hear us pontificate on Email us at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Okay, Derek, so... Yeah, and this, should they be more oncology-based or a little bit more general medicine-based? Oh, uh, well, this segment, I think, is general medicine. The okay. audience has no vote there. Because we have oncology questions with Dr. Sven Olsen for question of the week. And maybe soon, Dr. Molly Andreessen, if she agrees to do it. And I've got some other people lined up. So hopefully we'll have more questions of the week. Mm-hmm. All right, so what's our question of this week? All right, we'll jump into it. It's a 60-year-old woman who comes to the ED with retroorbital throbbing headache and diplopia for several hours. Um, she had a dental procedure a week ago. On exam, her temperature is 39 Celsius, blood pressure 130 over 80, pulse of 80. Um, you notice left proptosis with lid edema, uh, left pupil dilation with sluggish reactivity and um, otherwise nothing remarkable. Hmm. Um, you get lab work with an ESR of 60, white count of 13, 90% PMNs. So first off, which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? Would you say vertebral artery dissection, posterior communicating artery aneurysm, cavernous sinus thrombosis, carotid artery dissection? There's a few options. That's a good question. Okay, so let me see if I've got this right. And I don't have the luxury of getting to look at this question, so tell me if I say anything wrong. It's a 60-year-old woman who recently had a dental procedure. Now she's coming in with proptosis. That was one of the things you said. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. So that means the eyes are actually kind of popping out a little bit forward. Mm -hmm. Um, She also has diplopia, so she's seeing double vision. Mm -hmm. Uh, She also has retroorbital pain, so it hurts right back behind her eyes. Mm -hmm. Um, She has a low-grade fever. It sounds like she's 39 degrees, but she's not 
not yeah okay any higher than that and I, I I forget the white count was the white count up a little bit yeah to 13 13 I see just on the upper end of normal and what's the PMN count um, 90% so 90% yeah. okay so maybe something maybe nothing um, and I guess all of the options they're giving you are um, related to thrombosis or aneurysm or yeah. vascular issues importantly I actually forgot to mention that um, they say there's oculomotor nerve palsy, trochlear nerve palsy, abducens nerve palsy. I see, but so, now you're taking a step because they didn't tell you that those nerves were the implicated nerves. They just said she had... Do they say those nerves were implicated? They actually do, which I, I think my exam wouldn't be that reliable. <laughs> so I would just say you notice abnormality and, and kind of... Uh, Disconjugate gaze yeah, is all you would yeah. say. Okay. Well, that's fair enough. Okay, so, so this is somebody who's got, it sounds like, pain and pressure um, retroorbitally, uh, causing the eyes to actually have proptosis, pain back there, and causing some cranial nerve palsies. Mm -hmm. And the choices are, read them one more time. Vertebral artery dissection, uh -huh. posterior communicating artery aneurysm, okay. cavernous sinus thrombosis, uh -huh. crowded artery dissection. Okay, well, the only one of those that makes any much sense is the cavernous sinus thrombosis right there, causing the pain and discomfort, the proptosis. It's the best of the available answers. That. And the way to find it would be MRI of the brain. That is, yeah, that's the right answer, which um, kind of struck me because I've, I've never seen this case. And I think, like, initially, if I saw somebody like this in the ED, I want to image them for something like, uh, you know, I'm worried about that dental infection causing something tracking, mm -hmm. um, a mm -hmm. orbital cellulitis a good thought. Mm -hmm. with abscess, perhaps. Yeah. Um, something causing, like, distension there. But. Um, Infection has got to be on your double in, on your differential yeah. diagnosis. And yeah. So not having seen cavernous sinus thrombosis, I wouldn't have jumped to that. And I think that brings up a good point. The next steps, what would you do? You said MRI. I had to do probably MRI with and without contrast, depending on the renal function. That mm -hmm. would be my sort of next step. Yeah. I'm kind of questioning since one of the options on there is the carotid arteries. Would you consider doing an MR neck or you know mm -hmm. or, or that? And I think that based on the location of the pain, the fact that it's bilateral, I think, you know, I'd probably talk myself out of that in the emergency room. I probably think I'd first proceed with the MRI uh, of, the, of the brain and, and, and probably through the sinuses, mm -hmm. uh, probably to skull base. Um, and, then, and then if I didn't get the answer, I might think about additional diagnostic steps. Mm -hmm. What about you? You're in the ED. Yeah, so I would have I worried more about that, like, cellulitis abscess and probably just gone to CT. Um, which turns out that it's inferior to MRI for this kind of diagnosis. That's what I would think so, of. Yeah, but it, it's inferior for cavernous sinus thrombosis. Yeah, exactly. But, it, but I believe, isn't it also inferior for um, for cellulitis? I It might be, but I, don't I think it's more yeah. you know, easier to do and faster, so we get well, it done more often. Well, I mean, okay, I mean, there's a, there's, a, there's a case to be made that it depends on how quick you'll get your MRI um, and that you might do a CT in the meantime because if you, you want to know an answer quicker. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I think it, at our hospital, and certainly many hospitals, you'll be able to yeah. get that MR quick. Depends if you're in an in a ER facility where you're far from an MRI. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, interestingly... The explanation here also recommends a uh, lumbar puncture, and it says that is required to exclude meningeal involvement. Mm. And is that something that you had thought about? I would not have thought about that. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure I would thought have about that. Surprised me actually. Mm -hmm. um, the thinking there is that, given the dental extraction, the supposition that this is uh, infectious. Um, oftentimes, it's tracking into the sphenoid sinus or those areas to cause the cavernous sinus thrombosis. Um, that, that that kind of requires that you. Rule out meningitis, meningitis overt yeah, meningitis. Mm. Um, and then on top of that, you know, that means that we're talking more about a septic uh, uh, cavernous sinus thrombosis. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. in which case the mainstay of therapy next would be antibiotics. I see. You want to treat the infection. Mm -hmm. And what about if you don't know the causative organism, which you may not know? I think 
in this type of case, everybody would go pretty broad. Yeah, pretty broad, um, and probably oral flora since they had the dental extraction. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So like vancomycin could be used, but given that we're thinking, whoa, there might big be... guns, boom. <laughs> well, staph is the most common organism. I see. But mm-hmm. given that we're thinking that's uh, dental infection mm-hmm. or dental extraction related. Uh, maybe you want to cover for anaerobes with something like Piptazo as well. Mm, wow. Okay. Those Morgan kind of stick. drugs, you better you you got a job for you in Hemonk, because <laughs> that's what we use a lot. Okay. So so you're saying that staph may be the most causative known organism, but in this particular case, because of dental extraction, we have to think about anaerobes, of course. Um, what else What else do you think is good to know about? I guess what we'll call septic cavernous sinus thrombosis. Yeah. So I mean, certainly antibiotics uh, consideration for surgical management with drainage, mm. but then there's a lot of question about whether or not you'd want to use anticoagulation. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's an area I'm not actually too sure about, but it sounds like the data is just retrospective because it's such a rare diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, and there may be some benefit with anticoagulation for morbidity and survival, but unclear. Yeah, I guess I'd say that I'm aware of some small fragmented data for cavernous sinus thrombosis broadly, where it can also be precipitated by a hypercoagulable state or perhaps preceding injury or something like that. And in those cases, I think there's consensus that says people like low molecular weight heparin transitioning to Coumadin for something like three months. But I agree with you that I don't think, off the top of my head, and that uh, I don't think there's very strong evidence for that. And any listener who thinks that there's strong evidence for anticoagulation. But that said, I think a lot of people would consider anticoagulating just the run-of-the-mill cavernous sinus thrombosis. But the septic cavernous sinus thrombosis, I think you're absolutely right. The antibiotics are the mainstay. Yeah, and some so... If you were to use anticoagulation, I guess one possibility is to use it until it's, it's an unclear duration, but you yeah. can use it until the infection's cleared and they've improved. Yeah, <laughs> I right. don't know. I don't know if that three months that we use for everything, uh, everything else. else is kind of applicable. Yeah, and that uh, and that's a whole nother can of worms that three month mark. Um, but um, okay, fair enough. So if the immediate course of infection is cured fully treated and the patient's symptoms have started to resolve, then maybe you can wean off the anticoagulation. Mm-hmm. You don't have to stick on it for the full three months. Yeah. You've eliminated the precipitating factor. Yeah. Um, I say the final part about this question that was so interesting to me is it's there's a good differential on up-to-date for painful ophthalmoplegia, which mm-hmm. is a differential I'd never really thought about before. Painful ophthalmoplegia. Mm-hmm. When yeah. your eyes hurt. <laughs> when your eyes hurt. Yeah. Causes a painful ophthalmoplegia. So what's on the uh, what's on the differential there? Yeah, I'll just be broad. You know, trauma. Um, a lot of vascular causes can be involved, like whether that's a carotid cavernous uh, fistula or aneurysm, um, neoplasms, and, and mass effect kind of in the area, um, and then infection, whether that's bacterial, viral, um, and interestingly, viral. It'd be kind of herpes zoster. Uh, where you get Hutchinson's sign uh, and you get kind of vesicles on the tip of the nose or the side of the nose that oh, are that's proceeding. A, that's a board's question. When you see those vesicles on the nose to know that you need to consider herpes ophthalmoplegia. Yeah, exactly. Um, fungal. And get the, get the eye doctor involved. <laughs> yep. And page, then, him, page him day or night. <laughs> you yep, should be used yeah. to that. And then um, a couple uh, items on the differential that I didn't yeah. recognize was orbital pseudotumor, which is basically just a swelling behind the eye. Okay. Um, and then Telosa-Hunt syndrome. Telosa-Hunt. Have you ever heard of that? No, I must admit the Telosa-Hunt is uh, an eponym that's outside of my of my eponym dictionary. So what is it? <laughs> All right. Then fun fact will be that uh, it's an inflammatory process of unknown etiology. Um, it's kind of just nonspecific inflammation along the septa and the walls of their cavernous sinus. Um so you had a very similar like presentation, but it's it's actually episodic and 
um, self uh, or spontaneously resolves. Um, yeah. So of unknown etiology. Yeah. So relapsing, a, remitting. Yeah, re- relapsing, remitting. Just a unclear inflammatory process that takes place. Hmm. Um, they didn't really earn that eponym, did they? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't feel like they've earned the eponym because they're not telling me too much that's uh, like uh, in terms of the cause or what to do about it or anything yeah. like that. I guess they've just made the observation that this happens to yeah. some people. I'd be, I'd be surprised. I'd be curious to see how many people they described it. <laughs> yeah. Let's take a pause and look. All right. We have found who these people are. Eduardo Tolosa and William Edward Hunt. This is from a seminal paper that appeared, it looked like, in 1961 in, in, in French and in a, in a Paris journal. Eduardo Tolosa and colleagues, something syndrome of cavernous sinus. The considerations of a benign and spontaneous regression. Something, something, something. It's in French and I, I'm not fluent in French. It's, it's not a language I've mastered. Um, and then William Hunt. Painful ophthalmoplegia, its relation to indolent inflammation of the cavernous sinus. So that is something that I understand. So he's basically saying that this is this condition and it comes and goes for no good reason, relapse remits, and is benign. So it's good to know about. All right. So this was quite fascinating. So Stumper, this was a case of a septic cavernous sinus thrombosis brought upon by medically necessary dental work, treated with antibiotics, Diagnosed astutely by Dr. Tarek Tao with the more sensitive magnetic resonance imaging with gadolinium contrast. And you had a lengthy discussion about anticoagulation. And in the end, probably every consultant you brought in just said, let's just do what the experts say, fearful of litigation and other sorts of penalties that may befall Absolutely. said professional, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you treated this patient in the boards. Um, the patient got better. And probably four weeks later, when uh, the eyes were no longer proptotic, you stopped the anticoagulation. Mm-hmm. And then you probably, since this is 2019, uh, you probably repeated MRI brain imaging to, to document resolution of the thrombus. You'd want to check of that course. box. Um, and so that's probably how this patient was managed in the real world. Um, how else would you know if they're doing better? <laughs> of, right, of course. You, God forbid you ask him. Um, so... So I see. So I think like what what's the strongest parts of it? I think the diagnosis is strong uh, to recognize the entity. The antibiotics is strong. Um, the doing the LP for uh, rule out meningitis I think is fair. I'd want to think about that a little more in terms of that how that changes probably the duration of the antibiotics is probably what it changes and it probably allows you to get the causative organism which might be helpful to you. Mm-hmm. Um, that probably the anticoagulation part, the evidence is quite weak, but a lot of people would do it. The repeating the imaging part is probably the evidence is super, super weak. Um, it's hard to know what to do there. Mm-hmm. It's a good question. It's a great question, a mix-up question. This is what separates the wheat from the chaff. This is the this is what's going to get you that that unnecessarily high passing score on the mix-up. Well, I wonder how many cases of this I'll see in my lifetime. Yeah, no, this is a first for me. I mean, I have not, I, I, I've seen cavernous sinus thrombosis, but I don't believe I've ever made that diagnosis. I've always seen them on the back end. And I, um, you know, that they require continuing anticoagulation or they had that history. Um, I, I don't believe I've ever seen this, the septic cavernous sinus thrombosis, mm-hmm. this kind of story. Um, but it's good to know about. It's good to know. Um, and it certainly is a board's question. All right, Derek Tao, thanks for that stumper. That was a tough one. Thank you. We're back with Question of the Week with Ian Straley. This is inspired by and loosely based on, but in no way directly based on, the USMLE Step 2 CK. Ian, it's great to have you back in the studio. Great to be back. Here we are, doing it again. Doing it again. Time flies. 
And listeners will know that you are co-creator of the music on this podcast. So they should thank you every day when they wake up this morning <laughs> in the morning. Start their day with a little bit of plenary session yeah. theme song. Yeah. You should be able to get the soundtrack, you know? All the best movies have soundtrack yeah. albums. Yeah. Maybe we can put it up on your uh, Patreon page that you have. Then business will be booming. We'll be in business. Well, Ian, thank you so much. Um, okay, let's get started. So, question of the week. What do you got for me this week? Okay, so the first question that we have. So a 40-year-old man comes to the clinic complaining of dysphagia. Upon questioning, he reveals that it's definitely worse in the evenings. He also states that his reading glasses don't seem to correct his vision consistently at night or after longer periods of reading. On exam, his vitals are normal, but he is noted to have bilateral ptosis, facial weakness, generalized hypotonia, and increasing weakness with repeated motion. Mm. So which is the best test to clinch the diagnosis? Mm. Okay. What are the options? Option A, muscle biopsy. Option B, brain MRI. Option C, serum antibody testing. Option D, edrophonium testing. Or option E, electromyography. Hmm, okay. So this is a patient who complains of worsening symptoms throughout the day. They get worse in the evening. And uh, he probably has some disconjugate gaze in the evening. That's why he's getting difficulty reading. Uh, he's got the ptosis, the facial weakness, the hypotonia, the increasing weakness. This sounds like something I know. And you're saying my options are muscle biopsy, brain MR, serum antibody testing, erdrophonium testing, or electromyography. Those are the options. Correct. Okay. Well, I think I know what the diagnosis is. But okay. then the trickier question is how do I get to the diagnosis? So what do you think the diagnosis is? I think the diagnosis is myasthenia gravis. That's right, yeah. Okay. How do I make the diagnosis? Well, obviously, in my, in my line of work, I refer to this diagnosis to the neurology service. So I'm not in the business of making this diagnosis. But if I were to make this diagnosis, and I'm thinking about clinching it. So clinching it, I think, has to do not with sensitivity, but specificity. Sounds right. Why don't you tell listeners what the right answer is here, Ian Straley? <laughs> okay, we'll just jump to the chase. Jump to the chase. Uh, electromyography is the correct answer. I see. Electromyography. Right. And, and, and walk us through this. So I think a lot of people um, would have gone for the serum antibody testing because mm. you think, oh, myasthenia gravis, yeah. you know, postsynaptic uh, acetylcholine receptors have an antibody against them, which is true. But antibody testing in this case is the first step but it does not confirm the diagnosis. It's not as specific. So electromyography is the best answer. And mm. what you see on electromyography is reduced amplitude with repeated contractions of the muscle. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm reading here is that antibody testing is the first step of the laboratory confirmation as myasthenia. Um, the assays for the binding antibody are the most sensitive, and they've been found in 93, 88, 71% of individuals with moderate to severe generalized MG. Um, but... The confirmatory testing is electrophysiologic tests, and this is, what, this is what the test does. The test is called repetitive nerve stimulation. The test is performed by placing the electrode over the end plate region of a muscle and stimulating the motor nerve to that muscle. The nerve is electrically stimulated six to 10 times at low rates, two to three hertz. The compound muscle action potential amplitude is recorded from the electrodes over the muscle after electrical stimulation of the nerve. In normal muscles, there's no change in the amplitude repeated nerve stimulation. In myasthenia, there may be a progressive decline in the compound muscle action potential amplitude with the first four to five stimuli, decremental response. It is considered positive if the decrement is greater than 10%. 
Well, there you go. So that's why it's what clinches the diagnosis. It's literally kind of eliciting the, the hallmark of the disease, which is... Yeah, the pathophys, yeah. yeah. So that's a good question. Well, thank you so much, Ian Straley, for coming on for Question of the Week. You're welcome. It's we'll a see tough you, one. See you next it's time. a tough one. I'm back in Plenary Session HQ with Audrey Tran for Questions from a Medical Student. Audrey, it's great to have you back. It's great to be back. Thanks for having me. So, what's on the docket this week? What's the question of the week? Sure. This week's question is, how do you write a book? Oh, dear. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm only saying that because I I do know that you've, A, you've written Ending Medical Reversal, but I believe are also in the process of writing another book of that length. And I'm just curious to know, like, A, how do you get those opportunities? Like, what is that process like? and because it is different, I think, than just writing articles and manuscripts, how do you piece together everything? And what's that thought process like? Hmm, okay. Well, it's a good question. So I just finished the copy edit of Malignant, and it should come out in spring 2020, because that's the timeline of <laughs> publishers, a little bit slow. This book about cancer policies. Um, it's a good question. I guess I would say that probably to talk about ending medical reversal Adam Sifu and I wrote that together and maybe I'll have him on the podcast sometime and we can talk about what it was like to write that book so I'll talk a little bit more about malignant because it's also fresh in my mind Uh, I guess I would say how did I come upon doing it Um, the first thing is I would say where did I get the idea to do it I didn't know I wanted to do it until maybe around 2017 late 2017 uh, early 2018, when my good friend Sean Mylan Cody, who's a faculty member at Sloan Kettering, told me that you should just write up all the things you say about oncology and make that a book. You should try to package those thoughts into a book form because people may not always understand the argument when they only hear piecemeal. You know, a bit about mm-hmm. surrogate endpoints here, a bit about this here. But when you put it all together, it probably will make a really cohesive argument. And so I said, okay, let me think about that. Maybe he's right. Sean's a wise guy. Um, and then I had a number of long flights to Europe. And uh, that's that's and, and long flights uh, other places too. That was a year that unfortunately I traveled too much. And that was pretty much when my book was written is like mostly on flights. And I think it probably takes writing a few chapters before you really have a sense in your mind of what you want the outline of the book to be. Um, but once you have that idea of what you want the outline of the book to be, It kind of writes itself. And I guess to take listeners through a little bit about, you know, what this book is about, uh, it's a book that really has four parts to it. Uh, The first part is kind of a bit of an education where we talk about the cost of cancer drugs, their value, how they are judged, how they are approved, how they come to the market, how we think about them. Um, And we really kind of unpack a lot of terminology and unpack a lot of concepts like what really is a response rate and where did it come from and why is it this way and why is it not another way. Um, In the second part of the book, we talk about sort of the social forces of biomedicine, of how cancer trials and cancer medicine is always interpreted through the lens of who we are. And who we are is a field that is deeply conflicted, incredibly enthusiastic, incredibly optimistic. Um, And so we talk a little bit about hype. We talk about conflict of interest. We talk about precision oncology and where that comes from. We talk about kind of the social forces that really guide cancer care, cancer policy. 
And the third section, which I hope is the section that interests trainees the most, particularly fellows, we go through really seminal trials in oncology history and really good studies in oncology. And we kind of unpacked how do you become a better critical reader of oncology? What are some of the lessons you need to know when you read the literature? And what are some of the trials that you don't know that you need to know to think better about mm -hmm. this condition? And in the fourth section, it's just solutions. I've realized that people really want a path forward and I try to provide the path both in terms of short-term things we could be doing tomorrow, as well as long-term things that would really change the structure, I think, of the entire cancer ecosystem and align more care in line with what patients really want. But that doesn't answer your question. That's really just trying to tell you what this book is about. <laughs> but I guess it took me a while, like writing a few chapters here and there, like, okay, I was like, oh, I want to explain this. I want to explain this. This is something nobody ever understands. I want to explain this. People don't know these studies. I want to put these in there. Then after a while of writing, maybe like five, six, seven chapters, I realized that, okay, this is a nice way to frame it, to break it up. And then once I kind of sketched out an outline, then it was kind of filling it in. And then as I would walk around, sometimes I was like, oh, you know, I, I love that paper that came out in, you know, whatever, 19 diggity so-and-so. Um, and I, I want to put that in there. Huh, now that I have this outline, I think it will nicely fit in with this. I could talk about it in this context. And so it kind of, it kind of came to me that way on, on how to write it. And then, then you write a draft and then you put it down for a long time. Then you reread it again with fresh eyes and you realize how awful it is. And you're like, oh God, it's no good at all. And then, you know, this manuscript was submitted um, to a peer review press. It's been peer reviewed in triplicate and so I had to go through the revisions and that whole process. And now it's in the copy edit stage. And so I guess what I'd say is, I think for a nonfiction book, what you want to do is you really want to have something to say I think you really want to teach people something that they thought they knew but don't really know or they don't know and teach them things they really should know. So you want it to be a really crisp and clean explanation of things. Like for instance, you could pick up this book without any you know, oncology knowledge and by the time you end, I think you could walk into an oncology lecture and you would really understand 99% of what people are talking mm -hmm. about. Like that's what I hope. So I want it to be education. And then I think the other thing that people run into the risk of in nonfiction, the old joke is that 99% of nonfiction books are, are an essay that's been a stretch too long, you know, like one or two theses that have been, sure. you know, just elongated. And I didn't want that to be the case. So every single chapter, try to put in entirely fresh ideas and entirely different things on different domains that you weren't thinking about at all. At least that was the aspiration. My question is that I feel, when do you know when it's enough? Does that make sense? Like when do you know, for a nonfiction book, you, you said you just had all these ideas and that it could all fit and tie in together. But if you are doing the whole field of oncology, like where do you get that sense of finality, hmm. uh, if that makes sense? That's a good good question. I guess um, because the publisher says they want 80 to 100,000 words and you need to fill <laughs> okay. it. No. I think it's because like, <laughs> I don't know, I made a list of all the concepts that I think you need to know to be able to think about oncology really, really well. And then I started grouping them in terms of what like went together and made sense. And then I started grouping that in terms of chapters and then I started grouping in terms of sections. And then I think by the time I finished, I felt like I put everything in there that I think is what you need to know for oncology. Um, it's not everything like, for instance, I can't put a list of every single study that in every single tumor type that we use to take care of every single mm -hmm. disease. Sure. But we already have that book. We have that book that's called DaVita. You know, we already have a book mm -hmm. like a textbook of oncology. Mm -hmm. um, and this is a book about the ways in which the average person thinking about oncology and the way in which I've come to think about it are different. 
So that's I think that was my starting point. Okay. Why do why am I thinking about it this way? And in and the and in my hand, it's not just me. It's like me. It's like Chris Booth. It's Ian Tannock. It's you know Tito Fojo. It's uh, um, you know it's David Steensma. It's like you know there's some people who were thinking about it in one way, and then there are all these people out there thinking about it in a different way. Why are they thinking about it their way and we're thinking about it our way? And then I was like, well, maybe it is the, that they don't know this or they don't know that or they haven't looked at this or they haven't studied that or they haven't thought about this or they haven't thought about that. And so it's a, it's kind of a bridge between where I think the field is and where it ought to be. Um, and and that was kind of how I thought about it. So that saves me a lot so I don't have to teach everyone all the things that everyone should already know. Okay, but that said, then I think about that, like how do you move people over? And then I think, okay, now imagine I'm a complete layperson approaching this book. What does a layperson need to know? What's the vocabulary and concepts and history they need to know before they can even start on this process of going from point A to point B? Mm-hmm. And so I try to put all that in the beginning so that, and, and then the other thing about, I think, writing a book is you, you want to pace it out because you can't just dump everything in somebody's head. Mm-hmm. If you did that, that would be first year <laughs> medical school. You know, it's not, <laughs> no, you want to put it in, 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 in a way that they absorb it slowly. So those are the kind of the considerations that go into it. And then I think that, you know, those of us in academics who don't have medical writers, <laughs> uh, you can't go this podcast without another <laughs> medical writer jab. And look, I want to be clear on this medical writer issue. Look, I have nothing against medical writers. They're good people. They write good work. I have everything against somebody putting their name on something that they didn't write. I mean, come on. Um, and also, of course, these medical writers are not being picked for writing retrospective chart review. They're, they're, they're being paid for writing clinical trials that are run by multinational corporations for millions of dollars to smooth the message out so you don't see all the flaws. That's obviously what it's being done for. So come on. We're not using medical writers for, for case reports. Let's be honest. Okay, anyway, back to this. So when you don't have a medical writer I, and you're an academic, you do a lot of writing. But we do writing on the order of 2,000, 3,000-word original articles, 600-word research letters which remind me of that, that quote that's attributed to Mark Twain, which is, I'm sorry for writing you such a long letter. I did not have time to write a short one. Uh, they're often yeah, harder good. to write, you know, those short yeah. ones. Um, maybe the longest we ever write is a 6,000-word review article. And to be honest, I don't do too many of those anymore because I realize that, like, people don't read them and they take a lot of time and they're, most are not really useful. But that's the scale of what we're writing. When you're writing a book, you're thinking, I think, in terms of 100,000 words or something like that, that kind of arc. And, and that's a lot harder, and it's a lot easier to break it up into, you know, 2,000, 5,000-word buckets. I think the chapters in this book are between 2,000, 6,000 words. And it's nice when it can kind of break apart conceptually, in, and, and then it, you can kind of fill it in. Mm-hmm. Did you, are there any, I mean, you had already previously written a book. Yes. But were there other books or With works? Adam. yeah. Yeah, um, that you were like, okay, I like that style, or that the pacing, or the... Is there any other books that you would that you uh, modeled your style after? Oh wow, that's a great question. I guess I'd say that writing the first book with Adam was, I think, a different experience because there's two of us and we're so close and we've worked together for years. And so that's why I'm going to have him on sometime. We can talk about how we did it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, I hope it's like the best of both of us. And I think like that's what came out at the end. So I'm I'm very proud of that. And mm-hmm. and I, I obviously couldn't have done it without Adam. And uh, actually, writing this book made me miss Adam a lot. <laughs> he knows that I told him that. I was like, boy, oh. I really wish I had yeah. Adam to write this book with because it made Very it a lot funny. easier for me. Um, okay, but what kind of books do I... I'll be honest with you. I didn't model it based on another book in my mind. But you ask a good question. To me, there was no book that I thought was better than the first two books 
in, in terms of nonfiction science and, and taking somebody from a place where they might not even know the concept to a place where they really understand the thesis and the way in which it kind of goes from there, then the books by Richard Dawkins, Selfish Gene and Extended Phenotype. And I guess I guess there's a lot of overlap between these those two. And maybe contrary to popular opinion, I think Extended Phenotype is the stronger version. That's a great example of like a nonfiction book that I thought is succinct and really gets you thinking about, in this case, the long reach of the gene in a way you might not have thought about before. I know people like the Kahneman book, <laughs> and I think the Kahneman book could have been shorter. And, uh, and, and I like how somebody said that even if you exclude the parts that were irreproducible, that couldn't be reproduced, uh, it's still a good book. I was like, okay, well. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I think the Kahneman book is good, but I think it might have been able to be made shorter. Uh, that's another th- one of my personal pet peeves about nonfiction books is I don't like 600-page nonfiction books. I think they're really repetitive, or they end up telling you incredibly long anecdotes that honestly I can't sit through because I already know where the thesis is and I just want to hear the thesis and kind of see the the, 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 <laughs> the anticipation cr- is already it's gone there. Yeah. yeah and I do think there are a lot of people who tell me that they really like some I don't know 700 page book I always like to press them did you read every word in that book the end to the last 200 pages and a lot of people admit that they only read two-thirds of the book and so that to me is also kind of a failure which is that you might get a glowing review and people might praise your prose, but if people didn't read every word in that book, then you really didn't have them till the end. So that's something I tried to like avoid. Um, I don't know, I read a lot of nonfiction books and I think I definitely like a lot about them. But in this case, I felt like I didn't even need sort of an, one to look off of because I felt like what the material I wanted to cover was just so clear in my mind. Um, and that might have been the nice thing about like Sham's advice, which was like, he's, you need to write about this because you're literally like always talking about this and, and I don't want to listen to it anymore. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I was watching this um, video, I think, of Stephen King, oh, who's, yeah. who's a fiction writer, but he was giving a talk. He said something along the lines of the best ideas that you have are the ones you don't have to write down because mm. you, you're remember the, them. you remember them or you're constantly thinking about them or there's themes that come up. You know, this 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 situation reminds you of that and this and this like almost thesis of your life. And you mm-hmm. just, it's more that that stuff just sticks with you. Um, and in that sense, it's essential to write. And I think it's funny you mentioned Stephen King because I don't know if I ever told you, you know, I really am a big fan of On Writing by Stephen King, mm-hmm. his book on, yeah, right, his memoir yeah. on the craft of writing. And I think there are a number of things uh, about that book that really spoke to me, which is one, I think I think this is another mistake I think I feel like in nonfiction writing, which is people want to show you that they're a really good writer, they know all these big words, and they can string together really long sentences. <laughs> but I think at the end of the day, what the reader wants is for the writing to like be so normal and and direct that you forget your reading. Uh, I don't know, when, Ooh, when I read a book yeah. after, I don't know, it's hard to describe, but I'm sure everyone has this feeling after you read a book for a little bit, very quickly... I, I don't even think I'm reading. Like, I'm just, like, visualizing yes. the story and, and, and moving forward. But if prose is very c- complicated... <laughs> so, yeah. so that's just a very good visceral. <laughs> complicated. Then it always, like, breaks the spell for so, me. And I'm like, what the... You know, what is going on here? And, you know, so it breaks my spell. Although there's some writers who I do think can do it effortlessly, particularly people who are writing in those eras, like Victorian-era prose or something right. like that. But in the modern world, nonfiction, where you want to teach somebody something they don't know, simple, direct, the Hemingway style of writing, I think, is what we should be shooting for. Yeah. I feel like um, what I hear you saying is that in some ways it's not it is not necessarily the again 
the fancy rearrangement of words or the demonstration of vocabulary. Sometimes there's a perfect word for it. Yes. But I think more often than not, it's about the the interesting idea. Like if it's if it's that good, you can say it very simply, yes. and it'll take it'll take a hold of a person. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And and if the argument is compelling and strong and yes. all the data points are solid, then I think yeah, it's it's it really does it really does get everyone's attention. Well. Thank you for that question on how do you write a book. And then I think on a future episode, we'll get, we'll get Adam on. And then we'll say, mm-hmm. how did we write that book? Mm-hmm. Um, maybe for the 10th anniversary. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, and, but I, it, it, I did miss Adam. <laughs> Boy, did I miss him. So thank you. And uh, we'll be back for more questions of the week. You've been listening to season two of Plenary Session. I've been your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Review this podcast at the iTunes Store. Supporters of this podcast can back us on Patreon. Patreon allows you to support artists you like, and Patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on Plenary Session. Got questions for the show? Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or email us at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. We love fielding listener questions. Thanks for listening.